and now on BBC Radio 3, Discovering Music, with Stephen Johnson. And this week, he joins the violinist Jack Liebeck and the BBC Concert Orchestra, conducted by Matthew Rowe, for a look at Dvorak's Violin Concerto. Anthony Dvorak's Cello Concerto is one of the gems of the Romantic Concerto repertoire. Some people would say it's the greatest thing he ever wrote. But the Violin Concerto is another matter entirely. This concerto is not heard much today. Received opinion is that while it's full of lovely material, there are problems with the form, the musical argument, especially in the first movement. And yet for a while it was very popular. And the initial popularity does rather suggest that those problems of form weren't initially that much of a problem for audiences. So, is it simply that they were wrong and modern critics are right? Or could we be doing the Violin Concerto an injustice? Well, Dvorak's centenary year is as good a time as any to reopen the question. And that's where this programme is especially useful. I can rehearse a few of the old established objections and at the same time give you an idea of how the concerto works, where it's successful. And then you can judge for yourselves when the violinist Jack Liebeck with the BBC Concert Orchestra, conducted by Matthew Rowe, play the complete violin concerto at the end of the programme. Outwardly, this looks like a conventional romantic concerto. There are three movements on the familiar pattern, fast or moderately fast, slow and fast. On the other hand, there's not much cadenza writing. Cadenzas are those often very free-sounding passages where the spotlight is fixed firmly on the soloist. The orchestra's usually silent or making a pretty minimal contribution, and virtuosity, technical display, is everything. While Dvorak's violin part is very challenging, it's on the whole predominantly lyrical, with the soloist often sharing the limelight with the orchestra. But then you could say the same thing about the cello concerto too, so that's obviously not much of a disadvantage in itself. It's time to take a look at this music. The violin concerto begins with a very strong statement from more or less the full orchestra. The violin answers that statement with a passage that combines lyricism with an element of virtuoso display. In other words, it starts as a melody and ends as a cadenza. After that pause at the end, the orchestra repeats its opening statement, but in another key. And then the violin brings us back to the home ground, in a passage which is almost a mirror image of the first solo.
But Dvorak hasn't so much presented us with his first theme. He's foreshadowed it. He's given us a kind of taster. Now, this is rather ingenious. You take those two violin answers to the full orchestral statement, put them together, remove the element of display from the endings, and you have a real main theme. We don't hear this in full until a little later in the piece. And when we do get to it, there's a real sense of arrival. So there we have it, a full theme at last. But there still isn't quite a sense of complete closure. We've ended on a different harmony, a step or two away from the home key. This is rather clever too. Dvorak has left himself something to do in the recapitulation, that part of a conventional concerto first movement where the main themes all return. Perhaps that will be the point at which we'll hear the melody in a fully rounded form. But I'm jumping ahead. It's time to look at one of the features of the first movement of Dvorak's Violin Concerto which bother those critics. If this were a conventional concerto first movement, we would have a clear second subject, a second principal theme, in contrast to the first, and in a new key. Now, Dvorak does give us a clear second theme, a gorgeous second theme, showing on one hand a debt to his great contemporary Brahms, and on the other, showing that Dvorak could easily rival Brahms when it comes to spinning out wonderful long melodies. The orchestra plays that theme again immediately with exquisite decorations from the soloist. Only this time it's cut off in mid-flight by something we've heard before, the first phrase of the violin's theme from the very beginning of the work. And we never hear that theme again. It does seem to bear out Brahms's rather double-edged comment that what Dvorak tosses lightly aside would be enough to keep other composers going for years. But how much does that matter, if at all? In an orthodox concerto first movement, there would be a full recapitulation of that theme. It would certainly be lovely to hear it again, with a different continuation, perhaps. 
But Dvorak actually has something highly unorthodox in mind for his recapitulation. Incompleteness, the absence of neatly rounded endings, is this in a way what this movement's about? Well, does that sound far-fetched? Let's take a look at that unorthodox recapitulation. Dvorak builds impressively to a climax, and the violin's main theme from the start of the movement storms back in. This we hear in two complete phrases, first in the orchestra and second on the solo violin. But again, there's not quite a full closure. The end of the theme seems to point in new directions. We'll begin at the start of the build-up to the recapitulation. It starts with just a hint of that massive full orchestral statement from the very beginning of the concerto. So again, the violin theme isn't rounded off, it isn't neatly closed. But that open-endedness keeps us hooked. Perhaps the full closure will happen at the end of the first movement, with the violin resplendent in melodic triumph. At first, that seems a distinct possibility. Now we'd expect the second phrase of the melody to return to round everything off. That would certainly be effective. But instead, there's an astonishing passage in which everything, melody, harmony, tempo, it all changes. The first movement seems to melt away, and we realize we're in a completely new territory.
It's sometimes been said that at this point, Dvorak is following the example of Mendelssohn in his famous violin concerto, which has beautiful telling linking passages between its three movements. Well, Mendelssohn may have been the stimulus that got Dvorak's imagination working, but what Dvorak comes up with is quite original. Unlike Mendelssohn, Dvorak doesn't leave us with a sense that the first movement has run its course and reached its logical conclusion. Instead, here, it fades away, and gradually we become aware that we've arrived in a new movement, the slow movement. It's as though Dvorak's saying that the strife, contention, heroics of the typical romantic concerto first movement are not what his concerto's really about. Lyricism, melody, is the real heart of the matter. And as if to prove that point, he begins the slow movement with one of those heart-easing melodies that Dvorak could just turn on. it feels like we've really arrived. Interestingly, the second theme of the slow movement presents an even more dramatic contrast than that between the two themes in the first movement. This is its leading phrase. Plenty of contrast there. Actually, it's more a second motive than a full theme, and this is the shortest distinctive motive we've heard in the concerto so far. Its compactness makes it ripe for development, even more so than any of the themes in the first movement. And according to standard practice, the first movement is the one that's supposed to be about development and dramatic contrast. Dvorak picks up on the hint and develops this motive impressively. <laughs> Thank you. 
After that, we have a fully-fledged second theme. And I do mean fully-fledged. This is lyricism with wings. This time, you'll be glad to hear, Dvorak doesn't just toss that theme away lightly. In fact, none of the leading motifs in this movement are discarded after one hearing. Dvorak constantly rearranges the themes and the motifs, establishing different kinds of relationships between them. It's rather like an inspired improvisation, where the performer plays with leading ideas and creates new melodic meanings from them. And like an improvisation, it's never quite predictable. Dvorak doesn't always obey the laws of what a concerto slow movement should do. The return of the first theme, for instance, is in the wrong key. But the combination of almost continual lyric warmth with the element of subtle surprise makes this a unique experience. It's not quite like any other concerto slow movement that I know. At the end, it sounds at first as though the horns are going to repeat the whole of that first theme. Instead, they, and the soloist, dwell lovingly on its first phrase. And with this, the movement comes to a close. It's actually the first full close in the concerto. Now it's time for the finale, and fittingly, this is the most complete, the most formally rounded of the concerto's three movements. It begins with one of those tunes that has a tendency to follow you home from the concert hall and keep nagging at you to listen to it again. One of the reasons it's so memorable, it's what rock musicians would call the hook, is that it seems to be unable to make up its mind where the beat is. At first, it seems to be a moderately fast one, two, three, one two, three. But a few bars later, it's sounding like a quicker one, two, three, one, two, three. This is rather like a kind of traditional Czech folk dance. It's called a furiant, which also makes striking use of different groups of three beats. There's a very famous example of a furiant in one of Dvorak's Slavonic dances.
Dvorak's musical language may have been deeply indebted to the Viennese symphonic master Johannes Brahms, but he was just as deeply indebted to the folk music of his Czech homeland. In Dvorak's day, it was known as Bohemia. Dvorak was from humble rural stock. His father doubled as village innkeeper and butcher, and folk music was in the air he breathed as he grew up. In the concerto, Dvorak doesn't just make do with a little folk coloring here and there. He also manages to inject a folk element into the structure of the finale. The second main theme is in a slower tempo. It's still clearly a dance tune, but it's in the darker minor key, and the music has a more melancholic character. This alternation of a fast, high-spirited dance music with something more melancholic, or at least more pensive, is typical of another kind of Slavonic folk dance. It's called the Dumka. The Dumka originated in the Ukraine, but it was also popular in Dvorak's Bohemia. The really significant characteristic of the Dumka is that it manages to contain two contrasted moods. It's as though we're hearing... or to make one side triumph over another, as Beethoven might have done. You could see this as a reflection of a kind of peasant fatalism, or better still, realism. Life's like that. You take the rough with the smooth, or whatever the equivalent is in 19th century rural Czech. In the finale of the violin concerto, he writes a magnificent transitional passage leading back from darkness to the original bright dance theme. And so back to the first theme, though in a slightly new orchestral guise. The composer Arnold Schoenberg famously said that true folk themes couldn't be developed symphonically. 
A little later, another composer, Constant Lambert, remarked that all you can do with a folk tune, really, is play it again, only louder. Sayings like those have become received wisdom too, but I think that in that passage, Vorjak shows they're wrong. The way that that slower theme breaks down into smaller phrases and then builds to a climax, and the return of the first theme, that's all splendid symphonic concerto writing. It's real development, with the solo violin taking the lead in some of the most challenging writing in the whole concerto. Well, as I hope I've shown, this may be an unusual concerto, but it's also a very interesting and very beautiful concerto. It's also highly original. We have a first movement that starts by behaving like a typical concerto first movement, but which ultimately yields to lyrical improvisation in the following movement. Then the finale is pure celebration, everything neatly rounded off. So, does it convince you? Have the critics got it wrong? I'd be very interested to know what you think. Here now is Dvorak's violin concerto, performed by the violinist Jack Liebeck, with the BBC Concert Orchestra leader Cynthia Fleming, conducted by Matthew Rowe. 